I'm Chris Tapley, and you're listening to The Call Sheet, a show that dives deep into the craft of your favorite Netflix films and series with some of the most talented artists and artisans in the game. On a film set, The Call Sheet is perhaps the most important document outside the script. It's got your schedule, your shot list, names of the cast and crew, phone numbers, locations, instructions. It's packed with some of the most essential information about a production. And that's our aim with this podcast as well, to provide you with key insights and info straight from the creators themselves. So once again, welcome to The Call Sheet. For years, I covered Hollywood's annual Oscar and Emmy Award seasons as a journalist on the circuit. I enjoyed a front row seat to the cream of the crop year after year, But one of my favorite parts of the job was demystifying the filmmaking process and inviting readers and listeners behind the curtain a little bit. I've spent countless hours talking to filmmakers and actors about their craft and the intent and effect of their work. I've treated it as a sort of second film school experience, learning at the feet of masters. And I invite you to join me as we continue that journey right here with the many wonderful talents working with Netflix today. I'm very excited to talk to our introductory guests here today, so I'll go ahead and let them introduce themselves. My name is Ava DuVernay, and my craft is filmmaking. My name is Spencer Averick, and my craft is film editing. The late great film critic Roger Ebert once said, to paraphrase, cinema is an empathy machine. What he meant is that through the power of visual storytelling, one can better understand the experience of another. But when you're dealing in drama about the criminal justice system, I think that element takes on a whole new importance. Director Ava DuVernay has worked in that vein a few times now, from the 2012 Sundance hit Middle of Nowhere, about a woman coming to terms with her husband's incarceration, to the even deeper dive of the documentary 13th, which examined the system and its insidious roots in the 13th Amendment. Her latest project, Netflix's limited series When They See Us, is a natural step forward in this progression. It takes the domestic and legal elements of those two films and meshes them into a definitive five-hour portrait of miscarried justice and its spiderweb effects. Ava has been accompanied on each of these projects by editor and co-producer Spencer Averick. The honing and shaping of these narratives in the editing room has been key to their success, laying out structure, building performance, establishing timelines, and, often at its most artful, putting the viewer in a character's very headspace. Film editing is the essence of what cinema is. On this episode, you'll hear about how this collaboration began, when Spencer cut a bucket of footage for Ava that convinced her he was someone special. They'll discuss things like structure and how the story of the Central Park Five landed on a four-episode template. You'll also learn about their patented stews and scraps and why they are so important to the process. How an unused shot in one episode can suddenly turn into the emotional linchpin of another. All of that and a whole lot more is ahead, so let's get right into it. So Spencer and Ava, you guys go back 10 years or so now, right? At least, right? Back to this, the life... And uh, all the way through uh, Wrinkle in Time and now When They See Us. And so the first thing I want to ask is just how did that collaboration begin? What's the creative spark that brought you guys together and and why does it work so well? Well, we met somewhat randomly. Um, It was a friend of a friend, you know, kind of looking for an editor. I had not edited anything at that point. Ava hadn't. She maybe did a short film and we hooked up for lunch I remember I was really trying to have a professional interview. <laughs> yeah. Had no clue what to ask an editor. Yeah. So, cutting. Tell me right, more. Right. You know, like, I don't know what I said. 
I do remember I was really desperate for you. Like I needed. Yeah. Oh, no, you, you know were the in situation. the middle of editing. I had lost an editor. Yeah, and you lost an editor. Thank so, God. Thank God. Because <laughs> yeah. if that guy had been a good I know, guy. I love that guy. Whoever we he love is. Him. Yeah, we can't remember. <laughs> Shout who out to we that guy. Thanks, that yeah. guy. Yeah, he's probably listening. <laughs> and so the first editor said, you know, she said, you know, I met a guy a couple weekends ago who said he edited. And I was like, oh. That's gonna be the guy. <laughs> can can we meet him? So I'm sitting in Doughboys in LA, and in walks this fresh faced white boy, <laughs> who really because this documentary was about hardcore LA hip hop, like yeah. black people, brown people, like in the hood, like yeah. rapping for their lives. And so Spencer walks in straight from Petaluma, California, <laughs> and I remember one of the first things I asked you was like. Are you really an actor? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> he looked like a like one of these guys who wanted to be an actor for me, and he was the eyes got big. He's like, "No, I'm I'm an editor. I want to be an editor." I said, "Do you want to be an editor? What kind of editor?" He's like, "I want to edit documentaries. Very specific." Mm-hmm. I was like, ah, "You want to edit documentaries for <laughs> a living?" And I actually had the audacity to say, "I'm going to give you a little bit of footage and see what you can right. do." <laughs> yeah. I would an ass. I thought that was part for the course too. And he did it. And it was fantastic. And that piece is actually in the film. I'll never forget that moment because again, I was it was fake until you make it, right? I was like, Yeah, yeah, Yeah. totally. Yeah, I'm ready to edit. Yeah. She gave me a little piece of footage and it was like interview mixed with really cool archival. And I just had so much fun with it. But I didn't know if I was good or had an instinct for it. I just Mm -hmm. knew I loved films. And I just remember sending it back and getting the call back from her like a day later. And she was screaming on the other line, you did it. You cut the hell out of that thing. And I remember where I was. Um, I remember everything about it. And that was like, gave me a lot of confidence. Like, yeah, maybe I, I could bet. do this. It was, he was not, it was not about artifice. It wasn't about what he thought was the right way to cut it. It was just him. It had personality. Mm-hmm. It was funny. He had made these, you know, dry pieces of material have personality and snap. Yeah. And I had not seen that done before, and that's continued to be a big part of our mm-hmm. relationship. So basically, he put it to- together the way no one else would have put it together. No one else. Yeah, yeah. it was all, the, the only way that I, you know, it was just me in my room and nobody else, and I just did what I thought was right. And, you know, that's a lot of what it is, is just going off instincts yeah. and gut. Yeah. So how's the relationship evolved since then? How's it changed? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because we hit it off early. Like, right away, we hit it off. We were laughing. Um, same sensibilities, same uh, love of movies. We like the same movies. Uh, politics are in line, you know, um, come from very different backgrounds, but we just felt really comfortable with each other right away. And it's the same way now. I mean, you know, we've evolved as filmmakers, as filmmakers and as people, but um, it's similar to how it was before. We became very close. I spent more time, you know, over the years, I've spent more time with him than anyone else. Family, other Mm -hmm. co-workers in different parts of the company. Mm -hmm. You know, I end up spending more time editing. And because of the nature of our work has been so back to back to back. And this is really nice to do because it's like we're coming up on the 10 year mark. So to be able to sit down and talk about it is lovely. So Mm -hmm. thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, When I look at his life and how much his personal life has progressed since Mine, like I'm the same workaholic, single crazy workaholic that I always was. Mm-hmm. I just have more to work with. That's fun to me, you know, but I've been able to see him go from this. I don't know. He looked like a frat guy. He, was just, <laughs> he lived in a house with all these white boys, but he was special. He was his own person. He wasn't a jerk. He was, he was, he was smart and he was funny and he cared about the world. 
And, you know, I remember when he met his wife, she might stick, you know. <laughs> and then, you know, when when the first child and the second child and the first house and the second house and I'm just proud of you. You know, you've really. And so he's brought all that life experience into the work. So to be able to cut something like when they see us with the empathy of a father and mm-hmm. all of those things, yeah. I, his growth um, has helped me grow within the work. Yeah, I bet. Well, uh, we're going to get into the beginnings of this project now, uh, When They See Us. We owe this this project to a tweet from April 2015 from Raymond Santana, one of the exonerated five. And it was sort of a volley, like, what's next? Maybe something about us, you know? And you took it and ran with it. And uh, I want to know, like, once you saw the tweet and you decided, yeah, that would be the thing to do next, what, what were the next steps? Um, you know, I get a lot of tweets. I bet. And a lot of people <laughs> asking me to do those things. But I had seen the Central Park Five documentary by Sarah Burns maybe a, a year or so before, and I recognized, you know, the, uh, the account was from Central Park Five. Raymond Santana runs the account. And so it just intrigued me because I knew the story. I didn't really have a burning intention to make it. I was just curious as a person who mm-hmm. was interested in the case. And then when I went to New York the next time, um, I said, well, let's get together. I'd love to hear more about it. I mean, I'd just seen this doc, so they were kind of like stars, like public figures that I wanted to know more about. And as I sat with him, he was so charismatic, and the story was so fascinating. He was telling me things that I didn't know, um, and that wasn't even in the doc. I thought, oh, well, can I meet the rest of the guys? And so I met them all one by one. And after meeting the first three, I thought, well, I got to figure out a way to do this. Well, you've said that this, uh, you looked at the project as one film. Yeah. But it, clearly the four pieces are distinct in their ways. And just, I want to talk about balancing that. Uh, How do you balance those two aspects that this is a movie, yet each part is kind of a whole unto itself as well and distinctive? Well, it was a first for us because um, we usually just, it's him and me. He edits what I, he's really the only person that touches my footage for the last decade. So to think about directing this whole piece and knowing that, um, you know, I was going to have to bring other editors in, that was a, a new prospect to even try to organize that in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do you keep the uniformity of one piece, which was the intention and spirit of it, when I had, you know, different editors? It would mm-hmm. be like having four, in my mind, four different DPs. Mm-hmm. So we didn't make it that way. We made it as a film. Uh, in principal photography and in prep, but in post, it got split. And that was a, a bit of a juggling act. It was mm-hmm. a new thing for mm-hmm. us. Yeah, and this, um, you know, this, we did, we look at it like one film, it's one journey, but um, th- the way they wrote it, each episode has such a distinct uh, feel and tone and um, different parts of their life. So it feels like one long movie, but it's easy to break these up and you can have different editors and a different sort of style in, in the way that each one is edited. And it was just tough to, because I'm so used to working with them, we have our own shorthand. I struggled with even how to communicate with the other editors. Mm-hmm. They were fantastic. Mm-hmm. And it illustrated to me how much we probably don't talk, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like normal people, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. As I was trying to explain to other editors, I was saying things right. they didn't understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They didn't, and I was like, yeah, yeah just uh, just yeah. do that. Yeah. And yeah, that and that. And they're like, what and yeah. what, dude? Yeah. It was yeah. where we are just, yeah. we'll look at each other and I'll be like, there, there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that. It's just a d- deep down, I, you know, I kind of know what, what you're going for, right. know what you want. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to, to verbalize it. Well, uh, Spencer, you're a co-producer on this and, and you were on 13th as well. So mm-hmm. I, I imagine maybe you were involved uh, in the earliest stages here 
uh, but you, you tell me. But what I'm curious about in general is mm-hmm. how early are you brought into the process? Do you read the script once it's done? Like, are you there from the beginning? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Ava keeps me involved really early. She, even before, like, the green light is going, you know, before the movie's going, you she's handing me the scripts, asking me what I think. I mean, I'm not giving input on, you know, really how they should shoot it, but I'm involved early and we're talking about characters and um, she really makes me feel like, you know, part of the, the team from mm-hmm. beginning to end. And just on a, on a conceptual level, how did you decide how this would kind of move and be structured? Uh, like, how did you decide on these four episodes, which are, you know, the interrogations, the trial, the reentry into society, and then Corey Wise? How did you decide that this was how you would structure the whole thing? Oh, the way I pitched it to Netflix was it's a Central Park Five. Each episode is going to center on a, on a different boy. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that changed. Once you start making the thing, you're like, yeah, this, this isn't going to work. Because I became more interested in the systemic segmentation, the criminal justice system, and thought, oh, it's more interesting to take all of the boys through these systems and that there were four major kind of branches of the criminal justice system that I wanted to focus on. Mm-hmm. And so I rebroke it. And yeah. it was a, a great group of writers. And um, creatively, um, because it was so sprawling, it was a different process than what we've usually done in terms of writing and rewriting, which I call the edit because the edit is just rewriting it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tell me about the research because, you know, beyond spending plenty of time with the five and and getting their stories and that human element, you also have this vast legal drama to deal with. And, you know, not to mention just piecing together a timeline, the events of April 19th, 1989, and and, uh, in a way that can be absorbed by the audience as well, right? Like you, you want to not lose them and how you're presenting what happened. So just tell me how you came to understanding that particular part of the structure. The anecdotal research really was the focus of episodes one and three, one being when they were arrested and how they felt and their family coming in and, in and out and what they say, you know, happened in those rooms. The same for episode three, kind of feeling that they had when they got out of prison and that post-incarceration um, time, being formally incarcerated, being in juvenile detention, g- governmental paperwork, tapes, transcripts, legal documents, that research um, were the basis of Spencer's episodes, two and four. Mm-hmm. Um, so two was the the court case, two court cases, cases converging. Mm-hmm. And so Attica Locke, I wrote that one with Attica Locke. Um, and so she had to, you know, really, really parse through all that legal foot, uh, legal material. And then Spencer had to, on the other end, take all that and compress it down and make it digestible. Yeah. Because it's so, so much. That was one of the wonders of what he did in that. He kept it human. You're in it with the boys, but you're also following a case all of a sudden. So mm-hmm. it changes from episode one where you're in it with the boys and they're kind of going through this night in the in the in the precinct mm-hmm. to this kind of sprawl over several months, several years actually, where you're going through the case and so many uh, twists and turns and what happened being based on legal legal proceedings. The same with episode four, you know, really tracking all of the different prisons that Corey went through, mm-hmm. and you know, understanding um, the 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 wins and whys and hows of his trajectory through those facilities. Yeah, and shout out to to Hannah. Oh, yeah. Hannah, oh, come on. I, Hannah I, Baker. I, I asked a couple questions. Uh, Hannah Baker, I asked a couple questions. She had this massive document. She was our writer's assistant in the writer's room, and then she became my director's assistant. So she was, she is this incredible woman, a writer herself, who stayed with the project and really became the custodian of the script and the mm-hmm. research. 
you got you know we we condensed the the two trials into one in the end basically mm-hmm. i mean it was a kind big, of a big the swing end, the verdicts yeah the big um, swing at the end on the verdicts yeah and yeah. the way that it was written it was like the three first three kids have their verdicts and the second three kids have their verdicts but it was just like climax yeah another yeah. climax another climax so it didn't feel right so we we had to work with that for a while yeah yeah i remember the first time you showed me the end of two I'm going to talk about that specifically, yeah. actually. I'm curious, about, I'm curious about that montage. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. My oh, boy, put it there. <laughs> just want to briefly touch on the production phase before we get into the edit. Just aesthetic influences. What did you want this to look like? I wanted it to look like the men said it felt, um, to feel oppressive at moments. and um, And then they describe it as these spurts of joy. And so the decisions about color temperature, the decisions about, you know, making sure that we were flooding the room with with atmosphere, quote unquote atmosphere. So smoke in the room to give it that filmy feel like there's just there's a weight on them. It's in a, the, the, the environment itself feels oppressive. So we're pumping smoke. I mean, we're shooting through smoke in almost every scene. You can't quite reach them. They're not quite crisp. They're not quite clear. A lack of clarity in the image. Um, you know, a big part of it was in the in the color timing. Shout out to Mitch Paulson, my colorist, longtime colorist. And it was really about trying to find, you know, a way to to handle the skin tones and make those vibrant and fresh. So they feel like living, breathing boys for them behind this veil of smoke, if you will, mm-hmm. um, was the idea. And so it came across most in the color sessions. That's where we had to deal yeah. with it most. The beautiful work from your colorist and from your DP, Bradford Young. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if it was just me, but when I first saw it, I had this vibe. I got I got a Michael Mann vibe. I just want to say that because it it was it was something about the observational photography, the the way that it quickly but succinctly would convey information visually. And I was just wondering, you know, collateral is an interesting part of your history, uh, working publicity on that film. You recently hosted Michael in the film. Yeah, here. He we're here at Array, by the way. Yeah. We're recording this beautiful space. I'm just wondering if there's anything about his work as a filmmaker that you're inspired by? It just it feels lovely that you see something that might be speaking to that in my work. But um, it wasn't intentional. Sure. I yeah. just, I like the way that stuff looks. I mean, yeah. Collateral is one of my favorite looking films. Mm-hmm. There might be something with it. I mean, I was just watching Collateral the other day. Just that color timing, that green. Yeah. It's just over that whole thing. And I was asking him about that. And he said, you know, it was something that they really brought out afterward. Yeah. And it was... Um, you know, sometimes you find those things later. You, 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 you find that while you're in principal photography, you're attracted to something over and over, mm-hmm. even though it might not have been spoken. It might yeah. not have been intended, but you find, oh, I repeated that. Yeah. Or my eye went to that a few times. And so um, anyway, there might be a little bit of that in there. Yeah. I'll take it. <laughs> Let's talk about the edit. Uh, just broadly speaking, do you do a lot of takes, leave a lot of options? I mean, you know, there are budget constraints and timing. (laughs) And and so I don't think so. I do. um, And I didn't know this until I was working with other editors. I'll do a long, long roll. Keep it going. Which, um, you know, it it poses a little bit of more of a more work for the assistant editor because it's like finding stuff. Yeah. Well, she said, you know, she says action and then she doesn't say cut for a long time. She says reset, you know, because. If you, she says cut, then I get it. Like everyone stops and it's this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And then 20 minutes later, you can pick it up. But the actors are in it. Yeah. So she doesn't want to lose that. And she tells everyone, cut, I'm still in it. So you have like a take that'll have five takes in it, mm-hmm. you know. Talk about when and why you would go to close-ups. 
throughout the series um, because there seems to be a strategy at play there. It's it's very it's it was fascinating to me looking at it again recently. So can you can you talk about just any any kind of a general well, rule or thought on that? Yeah, I mean one? it's always been something that you do. You always get close. And, you know, it's like when you were talking about Michael when you were talking about collateral. The, the first image was like Tom Cruise tight in that car, you know, and and you know Ava just has a knack for finding the truth, the humanity of people, you know, just getting in there. And that's part of it. Yeah. I, I remember the close up that I, that we used in middle of nowhere. Cause you know, and I will follow. <laughs> I, mean, I gave him two takes. I was like, brother, <laughs> yeah. do what you can. Yeah. So, but I remember in middle, it was the first time I used an ECU extreme close up mm -hmm. on Amy Yatsi's face, right? When she gets the news that her husband has betrayed her at the, mm. the hearing. Mm. And it was really the response from audiences that made me like, oh, the power of being that close. Mm -hmm. And to use it and wield that tool um, only in, in precise moments. Mm -hmm. um, and it's become really instinctual for us, but I do prefer to get into yeah. the, the terrain of the face. Yeah, I think uh, in, in Women They See Us, uh, there's a lot of close-ups. There's not a lot of ECUs, but there are a lot of close-ups because we wanted people to just be with these kids. Everything's happening so fast at trial, getting accused for murder. So the more we could just be with each one of them, but then we got really close when, you know, the verdicts and when sure, those, things those super close. But we also. stayed close a lot in this mm -hmm. in this show. I think especially for this, you know, this story has been, you know, given to the public in a way that it wasn't through the perspective of the men, of the boys. You know, this exactly. was yeah. shared with them through the media and through politicians. And it was contorted and distorted from the very beginning. So to prioritize their perspective um, was one of the main reasons why we're always on them. Yeah. Well, uh, now I want to talk about these two specific episodes, Spencer, mm -hmm. that you cut. Uh, episode two is, for me, when I was rewatching it, it's essentially the storytelling episode. It's the victim telling the story she remembers. It's mm -hmm. the cops telling their story and then having it kind of clarified in their face by Mickey Joseph. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's how Bobby McRae's story is twisted and, and contorted when he's on the stand. And it also struck me again that editing is part of the narrative here because we learned that prosecutor Elizabeth Letter and her team edited the confession tapes to better tell their story, what they wanted to tell. And it's brilliant because it's a commentary on, on the very medium itself. I mean, what you do, Spencer, is juxtaposing imagery, mm -hmm. right? And uh, just the power of that, the transformative power of that. And can you just speak to that with all of that in mind? I, I, that's so interesting that you talk about, I mean, really that episode being, you know, really about everyone kind of editing and shaping and crafting yeah. their own story, which I yeah. think is true. Um, you know, I remember when you were cutting this, you had cut it all and we were, we were with it and we were like, you, you thought you said there's a layer missing. And, um, mm -hmm. and I think we got some feedback that, you know, it felt bit more procedural than you wanted. Mm -hmm. And you said, I'm going to go back and do a boy pass. And you went back through mm -hmm. and you, you dug into the, to not just the stories that were being told, but the boy's reaction to every story and the omission within the story. Mm -hmm. And I remember that's when the whole thing came to life. Mm -hmm. What Mickey Joseph cho chose to say or not say, what letterer chose to put in or not put in, how the, you know, um, the, the, the victim when she took the stand, you know, was able to say the details or was not able to remember details. Their face and their reaction to each one of those edits, omissions, additions really lifted it up. Yeah. You have the boys, you have their family, you have the legal teams. Um, there, there's so many uh, 
points of view that you have to keep in play, you know, keep alive. You know, we, we didn't want it to feel like Law and Order. <laughs> you know, right. we were like, I was afraid it, of this one. I yeah, was afraid of this episode. Yeah. You know, they, they shot it beautifully and there's creative angles that don't make it feel like TV at all. But we laid it out and it was good, but definitely missing something. So it was like, whose reaction do we want to see at each moment? Like, you know, which one of the boys are being affected right now? So we did the boy pass yeah. and we did, um, and that brought it up. Yeah. And that, that was the first thing that brought it up. Yeah. And the second thing was the end. People say a dinner table scene is tough to shoot. <laughs> no, dinner table scene. <laughs> give it to me all day. I'm good. Courtrooms. <laughs> this is why Chris, you have literally six sides. I had four cameras. Mm-hmm. That was the most I'd ever shot yeah. on this show. You got footage, four cameras. Yeah. Brad had a camera on his shoulder. Yeah. Three different um, camera people, two camera women, camera, two cameramen all had, I mean, you had a trough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember getting the <laughs> first footage. Tro- I remember getting the first bucket of footage and I was like, where do you start? Right, right. <laughs> but then I quickly realized like, you had to do this in order to get. What, I had to yeah. shoot it all at once or I wouldn't have been able to get through the days. Mm-hmm. It was too much to cover. Yeah. Yeah. But I but it, it, I think it's the most footage I've ever given you at oh, one yeah. time on any film. Every day, you're getting four full days, yeah. four cameras yeah. full of footage every day. And then, yeah. you know, yeah. as an editor, sometimes you get, you get multi-camera uh, scenes a lot, but they're usually on the same subject. So it's kind of mm-hmm. like, you can just kind of watch them together. With this, you had to treat each one as its own camera. So... You shoot an hour. That's four hours that I have to like really sure. look at. It wasn't just different angles of the same person. One camera was shooting you, you, him, her, and trying to put that yeah. all together. Anyway, once you got <laughs> somehow, that, <we> <laughs> somehow, once you got that layer done, which was complicated, then the boy passed, mm-hmm. and then the thing that really took it to a different level, level is when you cracked the end. Look at you mm-hmm. just leading into my questions. Bam. Mm-hmm. Tell me about building that montage uh, as the verdict is reached and ending on that haunting horn whale. Yeah. Well, uh, like I said, the the two verdicts for the first verdict was for three of the boys. Then a few months later in real time, it was uh, they did the verdicts for the other two boys. So that's the way it was shot. That's the way it was written. Um, and, uh, you know, we were watching it and I think you just said, look, we got to try to combine this and make this as one big moment. And they shot these really creative, emotional, super tight close-ups where, you know, the focal length, the, everything's blurry in the background. Mm-hmm. And these kids are looking right into the camera, right? Yeah. yeah. And so I had a lot uh, to play with there. And just, I don't know, you just, you know, you just start playing some jazz in. in there. Yeah, yeah just you start finding it. Yeah, yeah, you put on some music and, yeah. But it was, I mean, that's a really special end. I mean, it's I can't watch the end that end without get, being right. very so emotional. Right, so Ava and I... This had never happened like this. I played it for her for the first time in the dark music. Everything was really loud. And I just started crying. Yeah. Like, I think I cried before when I was editing it. Just sometimes you're working and then all of a sudden you go, this is real. This really happened. Yeah. So it's, it's tough. And I remember just tears coming. I turned the lights on, tears down your face. I don't think we've ever cried <laughs> never, at the same together. Thing. We yeah. cry. We've, yeah, we, we've cried. I cry a lot. But, um. <laughs> But we, like that piece, uh, watching it for the first time, him showing me that for the first time, he became emotional showing me and we watching it. And I just, I just broke. Yeah. And, and for several times after that, when we would work on mm-hmm. it, I mean, when I, we were, I was working with Chris Bauer and composing uh, in color, that piece, I, there were a few pieces in this would, no matter how I was dealing with the footage, I would just break down. And that mm-hmm. was, that was the first one. Yeah. I don't, I don't cry at one. 
but right. it's the end of two that yeah. is just a wrap. Yeah. And it's that the way that you juxtapose, um, you know, their faces, the slow-mo of the of the family's faces, mm-hmm. you put the, 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 the re- repetition of the guilties over mm-hmm. it. Um, uh, and then you jump into this shot of Asante Black on the, on the chair, which mm-hmm. let me just say, the reason why I got that shot is because it was Terry Someone. Shropshire yeah. who said, you need something. You need to, you need to grab something else here. Maybe, maybe for and, episode one, at some episode point. Yeah. one. And she she was needing something, and and I said, "Is it like what?" She said, "I don't know, like maybe in someone's head or like memory or something." Mm-hmm. It was not scripted. Mm-hmm. I was like, I, "I don't know." And she kept saying, you, you, "I feel like you need this moment." She, th- I thought that was going to be for episode one. I shot it for that, um, and we didn't end up using it at one, so it was really a scrap, mm-hmm. a scrap of of footage leftover a leftover yeah. footage that you took and so when it showed up did you see it in the cut and they were like oh wow you used that shot yeah. like you didn't know he was going to do that no. okay yeah that's awesome. i think that is a definitive portrait of innocence being lost just i've never mm. seen cinematically it portrayed so beautifully mm. not planned yeah uh, well, not planned in advance for that purpose that came out of the mind of spencer mm-hmm. Everick. episode four is almost a film unto itself mm-hmm. i mean this is the Corey wise biopic it's uh, one of the most powerful pieces of cinema I think I saw this year. Thank and you. I want to know, did you did you look at it uh, that way as separate from the whole? You know, you could cue this up and it tells a full emotional, complex story. It's a movie. Yeah. Uh, did you conceive of it that way? Yes, yes. He always said one of the first things that Corey said to me when I met him for the first time, it's not Central Park 5, it's 4 plus 1. Mm-hmm. If there's, I remember nothing else from our first conversation except that line. It, it hit me so hard. He said, I had a completely different experience than they had. And everyone calls us a Central Park Five. And no one knows my story or what I went through. I said, if you tell me, I'll make sure I tell it the right way. And he did. And it was hard for many years. We would go through that story of what you see there. And I picked and choose and curated what I felt was the most important to share, but was, was the most healthy to share because he went through a lot. I mean, what you see is yeah. not the half of it. Yeah. But you get the picture. And so to think about how to do that it was very purposeful that one would be like a bottle episode it would just be his experiences we would actually jump back in time right so at the end of episode two they all have their verdicts in episode three he's absent you do not hear from him Mm -hmm. they go from juvenile detention they become adults and you see them through that whole storyline at the top of four we jump back to the moment that he got his verdict and we dedicate it to him yeah. I believe the first cut here was two and a half hours of this episode. Is that probably is that right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's yeah. a whole hour of material missing. I'm just wondering yeah. uh, what stands out in those moments that you had to lose. Ooh, probably the first cut, you know, he's in the cell by himself. They just shot a lot of footage of him, you know, just living in there and imagining things and just trying to get through it. So the, you know, the, the first cut probably we just really let breathe. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, I think it's close to 90 minutes still. You're, you're, you know, you're watching something very down, very depressing, very diminishing to this person. And then you have pops of like the Chia Pet and, mm-hmm. you know, being able to just listen to the music when you mop. Yeah. You know, and for him to be able to find those moments and take his great of care and crafting those moments as the tough stuff throughout it. He was able to construct moments where we get these pops of relief in a very, very depressing story. Yeah. That was the only way you get someone through it. Is you got to give them something to hang on to. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I believe I read that uh, you finished that first cut early on, but you didn't return 
to it until the rest of the series was finished. Yeah, I remember we just really wanted to get one through three in a good place. Because four, it's so different. It's it's not connected. We'll get back to it. Let's figure out one through three and make sure we're happy with that. And then jump back to four. I'm pretty sure that's how yeah, it is. Yeah, I remember when I kept saying in the editing room to the whole team, if we can't get through one, they're never going to see four. Yeah. But I, I remember when four just started to rise up from all of them. Like people, I think one of the reasons why people started to watch is the early watchers kept saying, the end, the end, you got to mm. get to end, you got to get to four. Let's a shout out our other editors. Terry Shropshire, episode one, great friend of ours. She's been helping um, with us for a long time. We love her. Guiding us, giving us advice. Early on, we didn't know what we were doing. Yeah. And then Michelle Tesoro, we just met her on this project and she knocked it out of the park. Badass. She was great. Yeah. She was great. Yeah. 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 Speaking of Jarrell Jerome, uh, won an Emmy for this incredibly moving performance. Uh, and he has to go to a lot of dark places, obviously, in the episode. So just kind of to shoot back into production a little bit, I imagine that made for some emotional days on the set how did you shake it at the end of the day uh was it easier to shake it because you wanted to get out of the headspace i mean that question (laughs) yeah it wasn't just him it was all of them you know it was those boys early on i mean the boys really got me because you're dealing with just such young actors and you're asking them i mean you're terror i mean you know you're terrorizing them in the room for the camera Mm -hmm. um you know khalil harris's face and asante black when he's like i want to go home and I'm the one who's responsible. Like I'm saying, do that, go mm-hmm. through that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's tough. I mean, even with the with the adults, the women, you know, Ingenue Ellis, Nisi Nash, and having to ask people and be with people and 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 be by the side of people who are putting themselves on the line emotionally to translate these feelings for us. Mm-hmm. And then tell me about, particularly in episode four, sculpting that performance. Uh, you know, in in, in the mm-hmm. editing room as well. Well, I take all the credit for his performance. <laughs> Well, but I will say, you know, the editor is a lost partner mm-hmm. in any performance that yeah. is lauded, awarded, nominated, or loved. Yeah. You know, because actors are doing things different ways every mm-hmm. time. And to be able to find, oh, the first take of this moment matches with the third take mm-hmm. of this, and to be able to craft it so that it feels seamless yeah. um, is, you know, Spencer's a real partner in that performance, I think. Yeah, and I think but this is a little bit different. Like, everything you said is true, but this this kid came in as Corey Wise. With sometimes you get actors that one take is different, the next take is better or whatever. You're trying to pick and choose. He was like this throughout every take. So, you know, in the edit, it's more of like, Helping tweak the nuances of this uh, evolution of this kid becoming a man in mm-hmm. prison. You weren't shaping the performance that wasn't there. I yeah. think you were strengthening, you know, there would be takes where, like, you know, he's himself in his own body. Mm-hmm. So there are takes where he's playing young Corey, where in, in the moment his eyes are just a little wider and mm-hmm. he's just feeling younger. Mm-hmm. You True. know what I mean? Yeah. And then, or in a later one that his body, he was able to carry more of a weight right. to find those moments to help track time, mm-hmm. to keep him young when he That's was right. young, right? Yeah. And older when he was older. And then to find the moments of transition, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's hard when he gets the chia pet, right? He, mm-hmm. He's looking like a, in his body, he's his age, but the exuberance of 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 really just a kid who got mm-hmm. that right, yeah. finding that right take. Because I remember there was, you know, we look at takes like, oh, he's feeling a little older here, or well, let's keep him more innocent mm-hmm. here. And in those pieces, I think, yeah. you know, he gave it all to you. He gave us so much to work with yeah. that it was like a treasure a treasure trove of picking and choosing the mm-hmm. best moment. 
Uh, and speaking of solitary confinement, I also just wanted to touch on, uh, you know, that first section when he's in solitary. Mm-hmm. And that's when we get the story of his trans sister, mm-hmm. Marcy Wise. And uh, that further serves to unlock Corey as a character. So can you just kind of walk me through how that came together? Because it mm-hmm. is like so much in this episode, it serves and throughout the series, it serves to put you in the character's headspace. Mm-hmm. We wanted to get out early of this story of his sister and his mom. We wanted to sort of put that out early so you could care about him mm-hmm. sooner. Um, it also allows us to get out of the cell. You know, when I asked Corey, how did you, you know, how did you make it all those years? You know, and one day he said, I, I lived in my mind. And that was the key to unlocking the episode as we were writing it. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, well, whoa, okay, you lived in your mind. So let me talk about what that was. And it wasn't really in make-believe. It was really, as I went to talk to him and got to know him over the years, it was in memory. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to see it and to put down, you know, the first time that you see him and Marcy, um, when Marcy's not identifying as Marcy, mm-hmm. when we know the next time when she's leaving the house, and then the final time when she appears to him um, from beyond, or mm-hmm. she, he remembers her even within a memory, mm-hmm. um, right? So this whole idea of memory is what we played with, and to be able to edit that seamlessly where you feel like you're moving in and out of the present and memory. It's all the same thing for him Yeah, is, is really um, a lot of what Spencer had to deal with, with all that footage there. And when you told me that in the beginning, you're like, no, this is, he told me this, this is, this is real. What what happened in his head? This is all real. You know, he's sort of tying up loose ends um, in his life, uh, in his head, he's doing it. And I thought that was just, um, so interesting, and hopefully we yeah. came across. Absolutely. We're going to switch gears at the end here, cool things down, as I like to say yeah, now. Yeah, it's getting too uh, hot. We're going to cool it down. A down. <laughs> couple of rapid-fire uh, questions for you. Uh, what's a recent movie that blew you away with its editing or series? Irishman. Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> uh, God dang it, that film. Yeah. I mean, I was sitting there for three hours. Doesn't feel like it. I'm good. Like, I, when I saw it, I, I literally could have gone right back and watched it again. Yeah. That's how much that flew. And that editing, Thelma did it? hmm Oh, gosh. I mean, what a what a giant. Yeah. Yes. You should be jealous, Spencer. You have not seen it yet. We yeah. should go see it together. I'll see it again. I, I want to see it so bad. So great. What about how, you, Spencer? How about you? Uh, a film I was late to seeing that I saw recently was uh, Phantom Thread. Mm-hmm. Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah. And I just loved the editing in that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the use of close-ups. He always talks about being a big fan of Jonathan Demme mm-hmm. and his use of close-ups. Yeah. And just that like punctuation that, you know, and I think he shot this movie too. And I just uh, love the way it was put together mm-hmm. and the editing stood out to me. What's your go-to junk food when you're sitting at the Avid? <laughs> I'm trying to be healthy at the Avid these days. Okay. <laughs> that's, but, fi- that's fair too. <laughs> I love me some sour candy. And yeah. Some sour worms. Yeah. Yeah. You got anything? <laughs> oh, gosh. I eat everything. Um, <laughs> you love sunflower seeds. I do love sunflower seeds. It yeah. wasn't what I was thinking It's of, like a little addiction. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes I say to you, is this too loud? <laughs> and you never say it. You always say, no, no, it's okay. <laughs> so sweet. I'm in there cracking sunflower seeds. Like I'm, <laughs> yeah. like well, I'm on the porch. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know what I drink when I get stressed? Yeah. It's an ice blended white chocolate from um, Coffee Bean. Yeah. And it is like uh, um, drugs. 
Yeah, she goes. She it goes, goes straight, bam, straight into the yeah. vein. She goes. She goes. Don't me let up. me. She goes. Don't let me have it. And then, like, <laughs> and, and then she's like, "Where is it?" Yeah. <laughs> I have to go try one. If it's that so good. So good. Uh, Spencer, I believe you have the phrase "What if" on your desk. Oh is yeah, that yeah framed right. on your desk. Okay, so it's 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 a way to inspire yourself to look in new directions. Yeah. right. So I got that from Terry Shropshire, by the way. Shout she always Terry. had it. Oh and wow, I, and I stole it from her. Well, yeah. just for you both, uh, what's a "What if" moment? that you've had on a project that led to a breakthrough where you said, what if we did this? Mm. And it completely broke what you were looking for. It's hard for me. I do it all the time. I mean, it's a constant. Yeah, yeah. it's it's constant. Um, I mean, we're, we're always, our minds are always going to, um, what if we just broke this up? Yeah. You know, we call it a stew. We call well, it you a know, stew. If, if something's not working, let's try See, this is intercut. one of these things where when I'm sitting with other editors, yeah, I'm like, just do a stew. They're yeah. like, what the? They kind of, okay, okay. And then they go, Spence, what's a what's stew? What's a stew? Yeah. yeah. So well, if something's not working, we try intercutting, we, we try juxtaposing images, and we just try crazy things, and a lot yeah. of times it works. Stu is really everything that doesn't work. If you put it together, could it be something? That's yeah. what it, Don't give up on it. Don't give up on it. We also have scraps. 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 <laughs> scraps. I love scraps. I love scraps. Scraps is um, pieces of things that we've liked that just didn't make it in that we keep in a folder. Um, and sometimes we'll just be like, let's look at the scraps and just yeah. like, see what's there. Um, so that's probably how you found the Asante black, um, mm-hmm. horn at the yeah. end. Yeah. That's scraps from one. Yeah. You go through, you know, when you edit a film in month two, you might say, oh, we don't need this. You definitely mm-hmm. don't need it. I'm mm-hmm. sure. And then in month six, you're like, we need this. We Where need is something. It? Yeah. <laughs> Where's that shot? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So we're we're constantly challenging ourselves to think outside of the script. Yeah. You know, there's so many ways to put things together. Yeah. What is the movie that made you fall in love with movies? I'll never forget going to the theater and seeing Stand By Me. Mm-hmm. Oh, that movie. <laughs> Just this music and these kids and oh God. Like that's the kind of thing that makes you love movies. That that feeling that you have. I can still remember that feeling. And it's a feeling I still get when I'm editing movies. It's like how do I get back to that? Mm-hmm. This love, like, it feels so real. Mm-hmm. As a craft, I think The Shining or um, or Space Odyssey, one of Stanley Kubrick's movies where I just went, wow. Yeah. Look at these beautiful shots. The way it's cut, there's not a lot of cuts, mm-hmm. right? You know, I'm growing up in the 80s and MTV, and I'm watching this, this film. It's just this most beautifully crafted film. And that's when I was like, I remember, okay. I want to do this for mm-hmm. sure. You know, awesome. Yeah. All right. You've had time to think about it. Oh no, I already know mine. It's okay. West Side Story. I say it all the time. Oh yeah. West Side Story. I saw it when I was young. My aunt Denise was sitting in the Denise Denise Amanda Theater, the mm-hmm. Amanda Cinema here at Array, named after her. Uh, gave me my love of movies. She worked at night as a nurse so that she didn't have to, um, so that she could watch movies during the day. Yeah. Right. So she watched movies and she'd go to plays and exhibits and she was just an art lover. So she didn't, you know, um, live to work. She worked to live. Mm-hmm. And one day after school, I was over her house. She had a night shift and she said it was a weekend. And she said, you know, you got to be quiet. I got to sleep. <laughs> um, and she turned on KTLA here locally and West Side Story was on. And she said, oh, I remember being relieved. Ah, oh, it's a long one. <laughs> sit here and watch this. And I sat there and I watched it. It was a rainy day and never seen anything like it and never been the same since. Wow. The brown people, the dresses, the dancing, the romance, the camera, the story. I mean, I was hooked and just became a, just a long time, deeply 
in love with movies person. Some yeah. people are pet people, some people are sports people. That made me a movie person forever. Are you excited to see what they're going to do with it on this new one? Or I are you really love the old version. I'll say <laughs> that I don't feel the need for another, but we are always fans of Mr. Spielberg and are eager to see whatever he offers us. We'll see what it is. We'll see. Well, thank you again uh, for talking today and for inviting me here to Array. Yay. It's a beautiful space. Uh, if anyone's listening ever in town, come over here and check it out. Come They're doing a film out. series and, and it's just, it's an awesome community. So thank you again for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Chris. As you can tell, this was a vastly important and moving project for both Ava and Spencer. It took a world-renowned criminal case and did something with it that no one else really has, which is to move away from the headlines and the media identity of this moment in history and drill deeper into the human stories at its center to allow those perspectives to guide the narrative. That boils all the way down to the very title, When They See Us. When we see them, they're no longer the Central Park Five. They're not even the Exonerated Five. They are Antron McRae, Kevin Richardson, Yusuf Salam, Raymond Santana Jr., and Corey Wise. So if you haven't seen When They See Us, please check it out. It's streaming on Netflix now, and it's a powerful reminder of what Filmcraft can accomplish. The Call Sheet is a Netflix podcast hosted by me, Chris Tapley. The show is produced by Noah Eberhardt and the team at Blue Duck Media. Stuart Park created all the original music in this episode. And a special thanks to the team at Netflix. 